I feel like comparatively Sesame Street has a little edge to it. Hi, hi, hi. Welcome to Writing in Real Life, a podcast about writing, publishing, parenthood, and marriage. I'm Morgan Baden, and with me is my husband and my co-host, Barry Liga. Hello. Hi. So before we start, Barry, per usual, has some caveats that he wants to raise from the last episode. No, I just <laughs> ha, ha. No, I just wanted to clarify something that I said last time when I was talking about uh, publishing houses having a disincentive to have their authors get too big because the author could then go someplace else. Mm-hmm. And I realized after I, when I edited the show and after I actually listened to the whole show, I thought, oh, are people going to think that I'm saying publishing houses sabotage their own authors? <laughs> I'm not saying like, you know, there's publishers sitting around going, well, we could spend $100,000 to promote this book, but let's only spend fifty because we don't want him getting too big for his britches. I don't think that's happening at all. Okay. I mean, we were talking specifically in terms of authors being employees of publishers in that case, which is very different. So, All right. Thank yeah. you for the clarification. Yes. Okay, moving on. Um, So it's fall, my favorite, well, really my second favorite time of year, if I'm being honest, because I like winter better, which I know is a little bit weird. Fall is my absolute favorite time of year. Yes, yes. So I feel like our weekends are getting really jammed up with cool things. You know, I'm planning, I don't know if you know about this, but apple picking and farm stuff for for us in the next few weeks, um, FYI. And the zoo, which we didn't get to all summer because it was so disgustingly hot um i'll be out of town several exactly. weekends but yeah just fyi folks um barry's out of town quite a bit over the next month and a half or so so uh so i'm, I'm envisioning all of these wonderful fall things that i'll do as a family only sub out my husband for my mom i think is what's gonna wow happen. <laughs> i'm serious that doesn't hurt you're the one traveling Anyway, we did a cool thing this weekend. Um, we took our kid to Sesame Place for the first time. Which was interesting because she has not been as into Sesame Street lately as she had been yeah. originally. Just for some context, like, I mean, she's been watching Sesame Street since, like, six months old. I guess. Probably. You know, and by watching, I mean, we would have it on occasionally. She wasn't, like, right. actively engaging with it until much later. Um, so she went through a long Sesame Street phase. And then, what, three months ago? Two months ago? Became obsessed with Mickey Mouse. Yeah, and it is just all Mickey all the time here. But we were going to Sesame Place, come hell or high water. So so we went yesterday, and we met uh, my sister and her family there, and then my parents. And it was so fun. And what's really cool about Sesame Place, not I, and I swear this isn't like a paid ad. They're not sponsoring this podcast. Although, if you would like to sponsor the podcast, Sesame Place, feel free to reach out to Get us. Get in touch with us. <laughs> Writingandreallife.com. Use the contact form. Anyway, it's a, um, it's a really good size theme park. I I enjoy a good theme park now and again. Barry, for all you listeners out there, is not a theme park kind of guy. My middle name is Scrooge. That, that's accurate. Yeah. Yeah. So um, anyway, so what's good about it is that it's not like this massive four-day ordeal the way Disney feels like. You, you know don't need I mean? a monorail to get around. No. Yeah. It's really manageable. And it's obviously 100% geared towards very little kids. And she had a blast. Yeah, I mean, I was pleasantly surprised by the number of rides she was able to go on, yeah. considering how little she is. Uh-huh. Obviously, one of us had to be on the ride with her. And obviously, I am pregnant and therefore so, unable to ride a single ride at all. Therefore, it was yours truly who does <laughs> not care for rides, but I went on the rides with her because that's what you do. Uh, so, yeah, I was really surprised. I, mean, yeah. I really thought we'd get there and it would be like 90% of the rides. She couldn't even right. look at them. Uh, but no, she was able to do most. Well, and the really cool thing, too, and kudos to the, the park organizers, is that... 
they know that there's little toddlers there who need to burn off energy. So there's a lot of sections of just like playground stuff. Yeah. Like really cool. Well, they just, where you can just kind of run around. Exactly. Like building blocks and, and tunnels and slides and things like that instead of just ride, 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 which she needs, our kid needs because she needs that activity. So um, anyway, so we had a super fun time. I will say uh, it's a, what, an hour and 15 minute drive for us. Something like that. And we were reminded when we left on Saturday morning, what a terrible backseat passenger our kid is. Our kid hates the car. She hates it. And I would love to hear from other parents about what what they do if they are facing a similar situation. So she'll be two in a month and we'll be able to turn her car seat around, which we are really hoping will make a big difference. But God, I hope so. She is like, like she's good for 20 minutes and then loses her mind no matter what. Like I will give her the phone. I will give her food. I will be back there with her, and she wants none of it. She just wants out of the car. And ironically, the whole way down, she was howling and screaming. But the whole way home, she was fine. Totally fine. Well, until the last 20 minutes. Yeah, the last, like, 20 minutes, she started to get antsy. Which is fine, yeah. But it is... I don't know. It is, like, I I truly dread driving with her for anything that's going to be longer than 10 or 20 minutes. Yeah. And I'm really, really hoping that that ends soon. I hope so, too. I mean, I'm hoping that once we turn the car seat around... And she can sort of see what we're seeing. Yeah. I'm hoping that that will change her attitude. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I don't know. And we know, we've heard from people that this is a city versus suburb thing. So since she grew up, grew up for a year and a half in yeah. the city, um, she wasn't in a car much. Very rarely. Yeah. And so, but she was in her stroller all every day, ta- every day, literally, and loves her stroller. And now it's the opposite. She's almost never in her stroller yeah. and is all in the car literally every day and uh maybe it's just that adjustment but right it's it's a long time coming folks so anyway so that was our weekend fun times good i feel like that was another parenting achievement unlocked first theme park first theme first park rides. yeah first rides um you know yeah no that was it was great yeah. and and the funny thing was we were there with your sister and her kids uh-huh. who are older than uh, than leia um and it was just adorable to watch the three of them run around holding hands yeah. like they did a really good job Looking after her, uh-huh. always, uh, which was was very. I mean, obviously, we kept an eye because it's not <laughs> like it's not like they're teenagers, you know. Um, they're little ones too, but it was it was just really adorable. To and watch. then the bonus was this morning, halfway through a Mickey episode, our kids said Elmo, and right. we got to, I got to switch to Sesame Street, and, which uh, Sesame Street is so much better than so Mickey Mouse. Much better. I mean, let's talk about this as writers for just a second. Okay. Yes. If, if anybody who works on Mickey Mouse Clubhouse listens to the show, I apologize for what I'm about to say. But it's just a really stupid, insipid show. Yeah. And and it's, I want to say that they're trying because they do um, employ some tactics that indicate that they know that probably their content is not the smartest. And so they're trying to, like, throw in some value sometimes. Like, sometimes there's counting things. Sometimes there's shapes and colors. Right. But it's done in a pretty annoying way. Yeah. And certainly not like a clever way, especially for the parents watching it. So, and you know, Sesame street, I feel like this is going to, this is going to be the only time anybody has ever said this about Sesame street. I feel like comparatively Sesame street has a little edge to it. (laughs) You know, I mean, seriously, like sometimes people on Sesame street aren't happy. Right. Yes. And actually, and on Mickey mouse, everybody's happy all the time because I think that's what's going on with Leia is I noticed when we watched today's episode of Sesame street, um, that the one moment where Zoe was upset about something, our kid got a little bit 
agitated. Yeah. And I feel like she was about to say, like, Mickey. Yeah. Um, so I'm wondering if that's her appeal right now is there's never a, a scary moment or a bad moment or anything like that on Mickey the way there is on, Mickey, on Sesame. Mickey is completely anodyne. I mean, just completely. And, and it just it drives me crazy. Yeah. And from a writing standpoint, you know... The the show is supposed to teach problem solving skills. Yeah. I read somewhere that was the point of it. But the problems they are solving and the ways they are solving them are just ridiculous. Yeah. And so, yes, you're learning that if you ever have a giant straw, you can use it <laughs> to get out of your hot air balloon that's stuck at the top of a tree. Right. But how is that information remotely relevant yeah. to anybody's life? Yeah. So, I, yeah, I, that show drives me up a wall. Yeah. And it doesn't help that my brother constantly texts me and calls me to sing one of the songs on the show and drive me crazy. And For those of you who know the show, it's the hot dog dance. The hot dog dance. So yes. You're welcome. Now it's all in your heads. Oh, God. Anyway, let's move on. That was Please. our parenting update. Um, but exciting things. And and uh, a, a, just a, a note, too. Her vocabulary continues to explode. Yeah. But it was really funny because I just read... Um, my weekly update that I get from one of the apps that I follow, I've been following since I was pregnant with her. Parenting by app. Yeah, always. And it said that here's what your kids should be doing this this week. And she was right on target. It was things like singing songs out loud to herself yeah. and learning up to 10 new words well, a day. she's been doing that for a while. Yeah, but it was funny because I was like, oh, I thought she was like super advanced and here's this app being like, no, that's exactly what she should be doing. <laughs> I was like, oh. Don't worry. She's super advanced. I know she is. Yeah. Anyway, moving on. Let's talk about writing. Sure. Um, I saw a tweet earlier today that really resonated with me. And this person wasn't talking about writing specifically, but uh, I feel this way about writing. Okay. So it's from Laura Kolodny. Kolodny. I'm not sure. Anyway. We'll put a link in the show notes. Yeah, we've got a link up. And here's what she says. I just don't care about 30 under 30, 40 under 40, etc. I'm more impressed by first-time founder at 62 than young people taking risks. So here's, here's where I confess something. I, like, totally read both in work and in writing work those lists, like 30 yeah. under 30 or New York's 50 under 50. or what, First of all, there's no 50 ones. I should stop that. I think 40 is the highest they go yeah. um, because then we're all just too old. So anyway. Speak for yourself. <laughs> um, but those lists, and there's a lot of like, you know, PR professionals, 30 under 30, web technologists, 40 under right. 40, whatever. But I, it's something I think about a lot with writing, which is um, – does the 25-year-old debut ingenue get more attention than the 55-year-old debut with a, with a huge book? And I don't know if that's true or if it just feels that way to me. Like, maybe it's just a, a sensitive area for me. Right. Um, but it does, but, but this, just, this tweet really spoke to me because it is true. Like, and maybe it's just coincidence, maybe not. But the older I get, the more I find those kinds of lists ridiculous. And the more I'm more impressed by older people doing stuff than I am by younger people. Yeah. What are your thoughts? I, you know, I always bust out the example of Frank McCourt, obviously. Yes, I yes. Mean, the guy was 627, I believe. Something like that. When he wrote Angela's Ashes. Uh-huh. Um, and small digression here. He was the high school English teacher of Paul Levitz. Really? My friend and also com- famous comic book writer and for a long time president and publisher of DC Comics. Um so, yeah, he was Paul's English teacher, which I, you know, That's six funny. degrees of separation, yeah. right? I'm like one degree away from Frank McCourt. Um, so I, I think about that a lot. And I also think about, you know, when I was 
probably a little younger than you are now. Um, I remember being very frustrated because I, I hadn't uh, gotten anywhere yet. I'd published uh-huh. some short stories and some comic books, but I hadn't done what I wanted to do, which was publish novels. And I remember my brother saying to me at one point, you know as well as I do that most artists don't hit their stride until they're 40. Mm. And yeah. I have no idea if that's true or not, but it sounded really good at the time. I'm going to take it right now. Yeah, it, it sounded good. It was the right thing to say, <laughs> uh, you know, brother to brother. I think that there is less attention paid to the um, relatively older debut because we're less impressed because we feel like, oh, you've had all this time. Yeah. To, um, to hone your craft. Right. There's an implicit assumption that this person's been working on it the whole time. As opposed to maybe this person just retired from their job after 40 years working somewhere and at the age of 65 decided to write a novel. Yeah. That's pretty damn impressive to yeah. me. Um, and, you know, and I think those people get attention. Mm-hmm. I, I, I think for better or for worse, our culture is geared to respond to and respect and admire and make a fuss over people who appear to achieve something without taking a lot of time to do it. Yeah. So the 25 year old who writes a brilliant novel, it's like, you've barely lived. How yeah. have you done that? My yeah. God. Like, even if you've been writing half your life, that's not that long. Um, <laughs> and by the way, I don't want to knock those no, people. Oh, no, I, we're not I mean, knocking them. One of my favorite books over the past year was Sweet Bitter. And I believe the woman who wrote that she is was like quite five, young. Something like 10, that. She was younger like than our that. kid. I know that. Yeah, sure. She's advanced. <laughs> so I, I think that's part of it. And, I, and that bothers me because it completely takes away the the benefit of seasoning and maturity mm. and experience yeah. and longevity and practice and makes it seem as though accomplishment in a field is a matter of natural talent and nothing more. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and that bothers me. So you said the word practice yeah, and that, um, makes me want to pivot directly to my next topic here because that's sort of what this is about. Okay. Um, which is, a, I, I was witness to a conversation in a group that I'm a part of. That sounded very cryptic. It's a, it's a writing group. Okay. And, <laughs> um, basically, um, the question raised during this discussion was, do writers do better when we follow the winding path of our inspiration or are we better off sticking to a practice and committing to, okay, I told my agent I was writing book X so I'm writing book X, even though book Y is really calling to me halfway through book X. So a whole discussion ensued about that. In particular, it was one writer who um, has a published a YA and is supposed to be finishing up another YA, but is really hearing sort of the siren song of an adult book. And so we started talking about the books of our heart and, and um, the passion books that we really want to write versus the ones that you sort of have a contract for. And so you have to get them done. Also because you need to pay your rent. Right. So, um, you know, it was just something I was thinking about. First of all, it's something that I've been thinking about as I've discussed in this podcast, which is if nothing is calling to me so strongly yet in terms of all the various writing projects that I've been thinking about, why start any of them? Which I'm laughing and rolling my eyes at myself even at that. But, you know, the the point that they were trying to make in the conversation, a lot of people was... Um, this is your job. Like if you're a writer, this is your job. Sometimes you have to write a book that maybe you don't care that much about, or maybe I should say it's not exciting you every time you sit down to write it, 
but you'll learn to love it by the end of the writing process. Apparently, Zadie Smith said that when she was writing on beauty, she hated it and didn't want to write it, huh. but had committed to it and had gotten to the point where she didn't want to waste all that time. I'm, I'm right. sort of putting words in her mouth here. Um, and obviously, that's a beautiful book that was very well received and people are very glad that she wrote it. So how does she feel about it now? Let's call her and find out. Sure. <laughs> I don't know. Now, call her. You're on the line. Um, no, but, you know, it's something that, obviously, it's writing is different for you than it is for me. You are contracted to things. This is your income. This is your life. Um, uh, for me, I'm still allowed to dream and play and choose to abandon a project in the middle if I want to, because there's nothing riding on it yeah. except my own my own stuff, you know? What do you think about that? Oh, boy. There's a lot in there. There's a lot to unpack. There's a lot in there. And, you know, it, it, it's one of those things that I fear comes down to that dreadful phrase, it depends. <laughs> because it really does. It I does, mean, yeah. You know, I, I remember, I remember, you know, a long time ago, um, this was before my first book had been published, but after it had been um, picked up, I believe... I was talking to my friend Robin Brand, who is a fellow YA author and had sold her first book around the same time I sold mine. And we were both sort of just not getting anything done. Mm -hmm. We'd had a period of time where just nothing was happening. And I said to her, actually, I don't remember who said what, but the conversation generally <laughs> went like this. You know, what's going on? Like, are, are we just waiting for inspiration to strike? And the other person said, we're professionals. We don't need inspiration. Yeah. And there's a part of me that feels that way very 100%, strongly. Yes. You know, I'm, but I'm not contracted for anything right now. Yeah. Uh, I have no contracts on me right now. I, I am a free agent and that maybe that's why I'm having trouble picking between maybe. these various projects I've got because nobody's expecting anything from me. Yeah. Just to recap for the listeners, Barry's working on what, four different projects right four now? Four different things. And yeah. it's sort of alternating weeks. Yeah. Mostly. Yeah. yeah. I think I'm narrowing it down. But for now, yeah, four. And I, I tend to be a person who feels that, that writers in, in particular are very susceptible to being way too precious yes. about their work and their time. Yes. You know. And, you know, brewing the perfect I mean, cup of tea before oh, you sit down to write. And just, and just the whole invocation of the muse. Yes. You know, unless you're John Milton, stop invoking the muse, okay? <laughs> unless you're Tori Amos. I don't want to hear it. Yeah. It's just, it, it, it gets ridiculous after a while. It's like... At the end of the day, if this is something that you want to do, not just for artistic reasons, you know, Emily Dickinson, write poems, shove them in your sock drawer. <laughs> but if this is something that you want the world to see, then you have to approach it like a professional and you have to treat it like a job. Yeah. And yeah, that means if you're Zadie Smith writing when you don't feel like it, I mean, if you hate the book. Yeah. That's I guess one there's thing. different levels of, is it a book that or a project that you're not jazzed about right. or is it a book that you are actively disgusted by? Yeah. Because we all hit the point in our books where it's not going well Yes, and it's not going easily and uh -huh. it's not fun. It's usually right around the middle. Yep. What I call the soft gooey center of the book. And you get there and you just think to yourself, you know what? It would be easier just to turn back <laughs> Go back to home base yeah. and start out afresh yeah. on a new path than to slog through this gooey center, this quicksand swamp I've found myself in, and get through to the end. And 
you know, this is this, this is the genesis of writer's block, I think. Yeah. And I, I really feel like, you know, if this is something that captured you and captivated you at one point, there's probably something to it. Yeah. And, I mean, we all pick the wrong idea sometimes. But, you know, just jump ahead. Yeah. Like, if you're not having fun in the middle, jump ahead to the end. And see what happens. Yeah. yeah. And you'll figure out how to connect it all up later. That's it good. might be easier than you think. But this is why it boils down to it depends. Because yeah. you just don't know. Sometimes mm-hmm. you really are working on the wrong thing. Yeah. And it's it's really it's really tough to say. Yeah. Especially if you've got um, conflicting opinions going on around you. Like if right. your agent is like, no, you should work on this. I can sell it immediately. Yeah. This editor already wants it. Yeah. And you're like, oh, but I hate it. That's I, different. Then it's like, you've got a guaranteed sale, right? Yeah, like, but there's no such thing as a guaranteed no. sale. That's the thing. No, I mean, not. you know, I have had editors say to me in the past... You know, I've, I've described a book to them. Yes. Hey. And they've said. That sounds great. That sounds, oh, I can't wait to see it. And then they see it and they go. Never mind. Never mind. That's not and what I envisioned. Yeah. No. And, you know, they seem, I'm, I'm not bashing them or anything. It happens. Um, you know, they saw the final product and they weren't as excited about it. So I, I, I hesitate to say anything is a guaranteed sale. I mean, it's one thing like if you had a two book deal, right? Like let's say you had a two book deal and you wrote the first book and it had to be science fiction and the second one has to be science fiction and you wrote the first one and then you go, I think I'm done with science fiction, right? You know, like I just don't feel like writing science fiction anymore. Well, tough luck. Well, in that case, yeah, you're either giving the money back, <laughs> yeah, or you're writing a science fiction novel, uh-huh. and you're finding a way into it, finding a way into yeah. it, or. You just keep stalling and hope that eventually they just say, oh, hell, let them keep the money, which happens sometimes. It It happens. It's amazing to me, especially in an industry that, again, frequently talks about cash problems. Right. Where they will sign somebody to a contract, the person will never turn in the book, and they just let it go. Yeah. I'm amazed by that. Yeah. I don't have the balls to try to pull that off. I know. Off, it's amazing. To, to just walk away and just keep the money yeah. and see what happens. Yeah. I could never do that. But some people will get away with it. But circling back to the idea of practice, yeah, I think that's really what it comes down to if you're facing that sort of dilemma of, like, if you're a writer, sometimes the writing is just practice yeah. for a future book. Well, and that's, I, that's really true. And it also, it comes back to the idea... Of, you know, these, these prodigies, these wonderkins, you know, the, the 18 year old who writes a novel and it's brilliant and genius. And then you never hear from that person again. It's because that person actually doesn't know how to write a book. Right. That person had this inspiration. Uh The muse, you know, sprinkled her magic fairy dust on this, this person and this person created a book, but doesn't have the slightest clue how to actually write a book that isn't. An adrenaline rush, Mm -hmm. a pure inspiration, a moment of, you know, opening up the aorta and just blood spurting out. Um, You know, Fanboy and Goth Girl was like that. I mean, I just, I wrote that book in a fugue state. It was like four weeks, you know, and it was, it was basically done. We did very little to it. My editor is on the record as saying she did almost nothing with that book. And, and then when I wrote Boy Toy, now Boy Toy happened pretty quickly too, but I had to really think about, wait, how am I doing this? Yeah. Um, because the first one was just so easy, yeah. you yeah. know? So I think, yeah, I think in some cases that that happens. Yeah. So there's one more thing that I want to raise this week. Sure. I actually can't talk too much about it because I'm sort of affiliated with it based yeah. on my day job. But Voya, Voices of Young... Youth Advocates. I was like, Voices of Young Adults, that doesn't sound no. right. Like, Voices of Youth Advocates. There we go. Uh, 
got into some very interesting hot water this week. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and the book in question is a scholastic book, so you really can't talk about it. Mm-hmm. Um, but they reviewed Cody Keplinger's new book, Run, and uh, at the end of the review said something like, oh, by the way, the main character is bisexual and there's a lot of bad language, so only mature readers should read this. And as you can imagine, people were not really thrilled with this. Um, you know, first of all, there's the idea of somehow equating somebody's sexual identity and their sexuality with um, bad language. Right. For You know, first of all. Second of all, the idea that as a result of one or both or the combination of these things, that only a certain age group should be allowed to read it. It's not like she wrote pornography. It's not bisexual pornography. It's a just a girl who happens to be bisexual. And of course, one of the problems too is that, and the review even mentions this, there are there is straight sex in the book. Mm-hmm. And yet Voya doesn't say, hey, there is straight sex and bisex and bad language, so blah, blah, blah. No, it's just they zero in on the bisex. And, uh, and that's not cool. And it, it, I read the review, and it, it, it's a strange review, because it really just sort of describes the book in very, uh, very, very stilted and, and matter-of-fact language. And then you get this sentence at the end, and it really it felt like a very old-fashioned sort of review to me. It really like it made me wonder at the age of the reviewer, because it really felt like something you would have read in a review source 15, 20 years ago. You know, or even 30 years ago when it was like, there's a gay character in this book. Be warned. And it's like, wow, we've really moved beyond that. So that was very strange. Um, And of course, everybody sort of jumped on Voya for this. On social media. On social media. Morgan's favorite way of uh, (laughs) communicating. Well, because what I'm really, uh, you know, the, the... the content of the review itself is one thing. Yeah. The other thing is how Voya is well, handled. Well, that's it. the thing. I mean, Voya sort of they 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 doubled down, man. They just kind of they just kind of said, uh, you know, oh, you know, gee, sorry, not sorry. Um, and I mean, at one point said something like, "We understand," you know, because somebody said, you know, the fact that this review was published during Bi Visibility Week makes it even more hurtful. Um, and they said something like. You know, I understand that, you know, it's, you know, by visibility week, so you need an enemy to attack. And I'm just reading this and I'm like, are you kidding me? And it, it is a textbook example of how not to respond to this sort of thing. Including deleting comments and yeah. blocking authors on Blocking Twitter. authors on Twitter. Yeah, I just, somebody just uh, responded to something I tweeted recently and uh their their handle was blocked by voya and i was like wait what this is a thing now but i thought that was pretty funny um i you know i was i was actually really stunned by this and and shocked and and hurt because voya has always been really good to me i mean they gave boy toy their highest rating wow uh they 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 liked the killers books um but hey i didn't have any bisexuality so mm-hmm. but you know i don't remember them even commenting on harsh language in any of my books, wow. which certainly, God knows, I love me some harsh language. So I don't know what happened there. At first, I really legitimately just thought, oh, this is a freelance reviewer who went off the reservation a little bit. It fell through the cracks, you know, because they've always been a good, solid review source um, in my experience. And then the fact that they just came back with a hammer set on fire 
against their critics just really stunned me. So I don't know what is going on over there. It really feels like every week there's some sort of um, crisis in the YA community. And this was this week's. Yeah. And the... So, yeah. so I wanted to raise it. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Definitely. Very strange. Very disappointing. Uh, very sad. So that's it. For- this is an ABC News special report. We recorded this episode initially a couple of days ago, but today something very cool happened. So we are adding this into this week's podcast. Today... Entertainment Weekly revealed the cover and an excerpt from Barry's next book, Bang, which is out in April. Barry, how's it feel? It, it You know, it's sort of amazing. Uh, it feels really good. Um, I knew this was happening. This wasn't a surprise. At least not today it was a surprise. It was a, a surprise a couple of weeks ago when I was told that it was going to happen. Um, and uh, I, I, I sort of had this attitude of, oh, that'll be kind of cool. And then it happened, and I'm like, no, this is actually really cool. And it seems like people are really, really excited for me, uh, which is nice. I'm getting a lot of email and Facebook messages from nice. friends saying, this is so great, blah, yeah. blah, blah. So. Well, I, I feel personally like probably your favorite part of all is that on the Entertainment Weekly page where this is posted, um, it has related links and it links to a Bruce Springsteen article. I know, I know. It, it, it's it's beshared. Uh, yeah, no, it, it's kind of crazy. Um, I, it's just a wonderful coincidence that they ran this story the day his book came out. Uh, the one thing I have going for me these days is that I've published more books than Bruce Springsteen has, which is <laughs> which is pretty much the only thing I've got going for me now. Hey, what about your wife and one point five children? Uh, yeah, of course, <laughs> sure. All right. Well, congratulations. Thank you. Everyone, check it out. Um, check Barry's Twitter feed, my Twitter feed. We'll put a link in the show notes. Yeah. Entertainmentweekly.com. And now back to our regularly scheduled programming. So that's it for us for this week. Thanks for listening. Visit us online at writinginreallife.com. Follow us on Twitter at WIRL Podcast. And then find us on iTunes where you can subscribe to us and leave us a rating. We would love to have more ratings. Thank you so much, everyone. Have a great week. Thanks. Thank mm-hmm. you.